0: Hello and welcome to Episode 9 of The Downlink, brought to you by the University of Georgia's Small Satellite Research Laboratory. Today on the podcast, we're going to be talking about our new member here, Ryan from Georgia Tech. We're going to be talking about Space News, new CubeSats, and we're going to be talking about drones.
1: I'm Graham Grable. I'm a mechanical engineer here at the lab. I'm Hollis Neal. I'm the co-project manager, co-chief engineer. I'm Ryan, I'm the
2: uh, electrical lead here at the lab. And uh, I'm Kwa, the chief
0: engineer at the lab. So last week we took a little bit of a hiatus on the podcast, giving it a little break so we could all catch up on some rest and some sleep, but we're back this week and hopefully we'll have a good format for you guys and some, some uh, good content for you guys. Um, Ryan, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself?
2: So so two years ago, I, I started here and I met Caleb, the project manager, and basically, I not know, it, it all all spiraled from there. And so, yeah, even though I, I transferred to tech last year, last fall, uh, I came back here this summer to continue with the project. And now I'm here. Yeah, yeah. Ryan has
1: actually been a part of the original team longer than I have. He went to the Virginia Tech Hackathon with Caleb and Jacob and won UGA's first hackathon. So there's some lab news, uh, a really exciting competition that's going on between Graham and Qua. It's it's very exciting and I think so far Qua is in the lead. Oh yes, oh yes. However, there was a mishap and a peg has fallen off of one of these objects and been glued back on. So we'll let you guys determine whether that's uh, a huge, you know, drawback to his design. So basically what we're
0: doing is we're 3D printing CubeSats, 3U CubeSats, and Kla's, uh 3D printing his in three cuts. So he's, build- he's building the whole CubeSat at once in three different pieces. While I'm building the CubeSat... Uh, by printing off the faces and printing off some side poles to mount those faces on. And so that's basically where the competition is at right now. So I remember you know, waking up this morning, just like every morning, uh, checking
3: Slack to see uh, how my team is doing regarding the project progress. So uh, I had a message from uh, Adam King and he was saying, Sorry, Qua. It seems like it didn't go well from there. So, I looked at the picture he uploaded and he
0: broke my model. Why would you do it, Adam? Seems like my model might be a little bit better. It's a little bit more sturdy then, huh? I don't think he dropped my model.
1: I, I just think there was a sabotage. Oh, it was sabotage. That's exciting. So, so one, one fun thing about the, the two models is one is um, steel colored and the other is white. So, what are your thoughts on that, Qua? Graham's idea was, um,
3: you know, to print, to print the CubeSat in, in gray. Uh, so it looks uh, close to, uh, to the color of the metal as possible. But, uh, you know, um, I'm, I'm broke as always. So, uh, I picked the, the cheapest color they have for, uh, MakerBot printing, uh, which is, uh, the white color. I go with the cost efficiency option. Some good engineering right there.
1: Mm hmm.
0: In other lab news, we also secured our lab space uh, permanently. So, before we kind of had our lab space as uh, temporary until we finished some of our missions. But now we have the space for as long as we have grants, missions,
1: and projects. So, that's always very good news. So, I, I think one of the stipulations is that we have to have a project, um, and there can't be a lull of projects for a span of five years. However, I want to say that that is a very reasonable thing for them to say, because if we aren't doing, or if this lab isn't doing projects for a span of five years, it's probably died. Thank you to the physics department at the
0: University of Georgia for your generosity and your uh, helpfulness in helping us
1: get this UGA small satellite program off the ground, literally. It's really great, all the support that we've gotten, so... Yeah, so, so um, one thing that we are really thankful for, once again, is the entirety of UGA. Um, another way, though, that if any of y'all want to help out with this project, this is open for everybody. It's not just university that has to help us. We have a Georgia funder up at smallsat.uga.edu forward slash donate. Yes, and if you want,
0: you can actually take a look at some of the donation levels that we have. We have certain prize levels and that instead of you do instead of doing forward slash donate, you can go to forward slash funder on our website and you can take a look at the full range of little prizes and little, little knickknacks that we're giving away from T-shirts to plaques. And you could even get your name engraved on our CubeSat. How fun is that? We would love to engrave your name on our Cube satellite. So in terms of space news, uh, not too much has really happened uh, for the last two weeks, but one of the big conferences happened, and that's called the 4S Space Symposium. And the f- this symposium is put on by the European Space Agency, and it basically talks about small satellites, the ongoing developments, the new projects, and the new initiatives with them. And it has a lot of information, a lot of research a lot of interesting information, too much for us to talk about today on the podcast. But there was one mission that really caught my eye, and it is called Pixat, and and Pixat is a 3U CubeSat that is actually going to be sent up to space to study exoplanets. So, mm-hmm. if uh, you guys are familiar with the Kepler project it looked for exoplanets by looking for transiting planets in front of stars. So basically, whenever a planet crossed in front of a star, the amount of light that reached Kepler dropped. It, if you can imagine kind of like a, a person walking in front of some headlights, that intensity drops off when they pass in front. And so it's basically the same concept as planets. And with Pixat, they're going to be doing the same thing, but instead of looking for exoplanets, they're going to be studying the exoplanet Beta Pictoris B, and they're going to be taking a look at the density, mass, um, lots of other information about this exoplanet using the transit method, the same thing as what Kepler is doing. And so one thing I find really amazing is how a CubeSat like this is able to have the same type of mission concept
1: as a multi-million dollar project like Kepler. One cool thing about this that always blows my mind is not the technology itself right now but the actual science to to be able to do this to be able to look at a difference in light and be like oh this is the mass of the object this is the size of the object this is even the density of the object and that that's a lot of data to to get from from what they have
2: well yeah yeah it seems like a lot of uh, discoveries in astronomy are based off of like data sets that are very hard to analyze and like just you have to use all these techniques available to like extract this. I mean, like you can't just go up and physically like measure it. You have to, <laughs> you know, take a spectrometer and, you know, determine, you know, absorption patterns and things like that. And then, I don't know. It, it's really incredible how mm-hmm. just being able to do that.
0: Yeah, I think we find ourselves every single time we do, a uh, we record a new podcast uh, just talking about the new cubes, admissions and, what they're able to do, we find ourselves really being amazed on what what can be done on such small platforms and just how it can actually do actual science instead of just being sort of just like a Sputnik for universities. Mm-hmm. So another amazing mission that CubeSats are being a part of is quantum physics. Oh, so here we go. You may not uh, necessarily associate quantum physics with CubeSats, but there's a mission being put on, or I should say it's actually it's been completed, and it had a few hiccups. So initially this CubeSat was going to be launched on the Orbital 3 launch, but that launch turned into an, a fiery explosion. Oh, no. So that CubeSat was actually lost, but uh, it was actually found on the beach in working
1: order. Wait. Yeah. Wait a second. It actually survived, order. but it wasn't really, like, flight re- ready anymore. Wait, so you're saying that... The cube satellite went up in the rocket. The rocket exploded. Well, no, like, ex- that was the one that exploded on the launch pad. Oh, on the launch pad. Okay, uh,
0: so. so. it was
2: ejected all the way, like, onto the beach?
0: Yeah. Wow. Yeah, exactly. Wait, so. And like, it
2: survived. All the instruments inside were, like, okay.
0: Um, well, I'm not sure if all of them were okay, but uh, I read it was, the, the satellite was still operational. So like,
2: so, like, the payload area, I guess, are there, like, optics in there to, for the experiment or what?
0: So, more on that. So, the actual payload is actually using two photons, and basically what they're trying to do is correlate the two photons to be associated with each other, and once you know what one photon is doing, you're able to know what the other photon is doing. That's sort of the quantum mechanics of the
1: world, and gets really weird. I love Einstein's, um, what he calls it, spooky motion at a distance, or spooky action. Yeah. That's a, not motion, spooky action at a distance. So, after the Orbital 3 explosion, the mission was given
0: a new life and uh, second breath, and it was uh, put onto the Galassia, I probably mispronounced that, uh, the Galassia 2U CubeSat, and that was uh, just recently released from the ISS, I believe, um, last year. And so, that payload was actually successful in taking a look at quantum entanglement Uh, from orbit. And so what this really can do is uh, we can do quantum entanglement on the ground, but the distance in that and how photons are correlated to each other is very short. But in space, that distance is increased by a lot, and I'm not exactly sure why, but this CubeSat was able to prove that quantum entanglement and creating quantum networks uh, could be a thing. So in the future, we could see encryption and high levels of security with data
1: um, being done with quantum physics, or simply just communication itself. If you're able to, to I don't know, I don't know about um, how how all of this works, but um, the for the the spooky action, if you can somehow measure what's happening and and manipulate it, you could you could do some really really neat stuff. And it wouldn't be space news if we didn't talk a little bit about
0: SpaceX and Bigelow, because I think SpaceX landed their rocket since last week talked to you guys.
1: Oh, yeah, they did. I, right. I forgot that we have not had a podcast since then. Yes. That was awesome.
0: Yes. I think, that, uh, so if you don't know, the, this was another geostationary transfer launch. And so basically it was high energy, high velocity, and it came down a little hard, but uh, I think it, it used up the crush core in one of its legs. Uh, if you see images on the internet, it's going to be leaning over a bit.
1: Yes, it was. It's, that's so neat that, that this is the second geostationary transfer orbit rocket booster that they actually were able to, to land the first stage of the entire rocket. That's just so neat that, that they're they're getting a pretty good track record.
2: It's incredible. I mean, that's their third barge landing, fourth total landing mm-hmm
1: yeah I, s- I saw a uh tweet from elon musk that had the warehouse where they were storing their rockets and they said it's getting a little yeah. crowded in here or something along those lines i think it look
0: from those pictures it looks like they only have one spot left so it looks like we may see a
1: reflight soon oh that that's really exciting yeah. is the actual fruition of the the saving cost of a rocket
2: yeah i mean they they can definitely save a lot of costs hopefully more than i know i know the uh the shuttle had a lot of repair costs that actually made it uh, pretty expensive to relaunch and not too viable. But if they can shave off, I, I think they said like a relaunch would be. I mean, I, I'm not sure exactly how like veritable this is, but if it's like sixty percent the cost of you know launching with a completely new rocket, then I mean that's still an incredible amount saved. And even now they they're already. You know they're already cheaper than other alternatives like ULA.
1: That's really neat. It's really cool to see how um, SpaceX just kind of came out of nowhere and and just took over and and when I say took over, I mean they didn't literally take over, but they they have they're such a, a viable business. It's really cool seeing what they're doing. Yeah, I think another interesting thing is what Bigelow is doing with space and instead of
0: sending up just raw space modules like what we've been doing with the international space station we can instead set up inflatable modules and so i think we saw the inflation of beam the uh, first prototype of bigelow's ideas
1: and it's actually pretty cool i don't know if you guys saw the video of that or not Mm -hmm. I, i didn't see the video but one one really neat thing that i think you're talking about the inflatable habitat right that's right so, so one really cool thing about this in, inflatable habitat that I have to remember is, so they keep talking about it inflating, right? That that it's inflatable. So the thing that I have to remember is that it's a vacuum, or it's a it's a very 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 near vacuum because we're not like all the way out in space yet. Um, I don't know, is it a total vacuum?
0: Yeah,
1: but um, but that that really all that they have to do is is. Give some air, and it almost just blows itself off into, like when I say blows itself up, it it inflates itself, right? Yeah, because um, all you really have to do is like open a little valve, and it'll suck the air in for it. Is that is that correct? I I
0: I don't don't
2: exactly how much is.
0: I don't know. I remember them having to open up a valve, so I feel like there might have been some air pressure there to help it out. Um, but so so like a compressed tanker.
1: Yeah, I mean, it makes sense that they need the air to come from somewhere that's not. What they're already using. Like, they have to bring up more air to inflate it, like in the, the launch, because they only have a certain <laughs> amount of usable air. I would yeah, think yeah. They, they might have
3: used, uh, instead of a mix of, you know, like a typical air um, ratio that we have, they might have just used nitrogen um, to uh, make it less flammable.
1: Can mm. Look this up. <laughs> yeah,
3: they could have just uh, compressed uh, some nitrogen into liquid form and uh, just expand it later on.
0: Yeah, so for those who don't quite know, when we talk about the Bigelow module inflating, it's not like it's inflating like a balloon. Uh, The Bigelow module has actually two walls, one is like on the outside exposed to space, and there's one that's for the interior. And what's really inflating is the space in between those walls. So if you can imagine like two latex gloves and putting air between those two latex gloves, that's kind of how the... Uh, beam module on the international space
1: station actually inflated so in that case the pressure between walls would have to be a necessary um, thing if it's it's, if it's multiple layered and they have air in the different sides but uh, you know it's a really really complicated idea and they pulled it off which is awesome and i don't fully understand the science behind the entire operation but it's really neat and they did a great job so now we'll talk a little bit about drones, what
0: they are, what goes into them to make them work, and what they can be doing to the future. Talk- to talk about that, we have Kwaal, our resident drone master. Uh, he started working with drones when he was really young and has really actually built a very large one, and it's still almost finished in the lab. So take it away, Qual. Drone master,
3: I, I don't think... Uh, I build drones that well. Uh, I cook better and I'm not a good cook. <laughs> but, uh, if you guys remember from, uh, uh, two weeks ago, we, uh, had a, a test calibration for, for, uh, our hexacopter. Uh, oh, yeah. A few days after we actually flew the hexacopter. And, um, at first it wasn't successful <laughs> because, uh, it wasn't tuned at all. Uh, it was just a PID values for, uh, pitch row and yaw. And, uh, so it, it took us a day to tune it. Uh, it was, Four of us out there was hot. We were all sweating, uh, mm-hmm. but you know, as sweaty as it is, we we were successful. It flew, and uh, we have some footage of it that we can
1: share. It was very neat. It, it was really cool seeing the the drone at first that we weren't able to take it off the ground, or uh, we it was it was qua qua wasn't able to take it off the ground because it would it was just too um, it would overcorrect whenever. Or under-correct whenever one side was going more than the other. Yeah, it was just both. It was just, it wasn't well tuned at all. Mm-hmm. And it was really cool watching him zero in on that value. And once he had that value, you were able to actually fly it around for a little while. It's not quite autonomous like we hope, but it's very, very, very close.
3: Yeah, autonomous is, uh, is the next step. Uh, I think that's coming very soon. Uh, I think afterward, where did we go? I think we celebrated at Mellow Mushroom. We sure did. Uh, that pizza tastes much better than what it we usually were, does.
1: <laughs> we were reminiscing about our Pizza Decider app, uh, wishing that it was with us. <laughs> oh, yes, the Pizza Decider. Got to remember <laughs> that. Speaking
0: of which, we're making a GUI for it. So, we might <laughs> <laughs> yes, I actually we, don't know about that. But yes, with okay. the MATLAB GUI builder, uh, we were building. Oh, very, we actually
3: are very exquisite uh, pizza program. Not only to decide, but also you know, election and uh, all kind of things regarding pizza. Well, back to the drones. So, so what kind of material do you use on the drone quad? Uh, so, um, depends on the model. Uh, most of the model I've built um, is use uh, carbon fiber for the frame mostly. But sometime um, regarding some model, uh, some that you expect to crash or. <laughs> um, some of the very low cost uh, actually use aluminium for the frame, and uh, it's worked fine uh, for the past years.
1: That's really neat. I I remember Qua coming with his propeller blades that are the the length of his forearm, and it, they they are it's a very big hexacopter.
3: Yeah, it's huge. Uh, when we were doing the calibration dance, we don't have any footage of it, unfortunately. Oh, but, but
1: we have evidence. Yeah, we
3: have evidence, and it was just me and Hollis uh, hauling that thing around, just just dancing with it, it was. It, it was, was great. It,
0: it was nice. I think you were telling us earlier in the week that you started building drones and started getting involved with all this uh, when you joined TSA.
3: Yes, so uh, TSA was probably one of my um, best decisions ever in my life, uh, joining TSA in high school. Uh, is Technology Student Association and uh, I joined it in freshman year um, thinking that, you know, it might inspire me to do something that's, you because know, I, I always loved robots so... Maybe it could inspire me to make something cool. Uh just nothing big, just something that I like. Uh, so over the over the three year I was there, um I competed in a TSA robotics competition. Uh a few of them is just Vex Robotics, uh, Lego. It was just it was amazing. Uh the people are nice. Um they actually host the uh, uh annual um TSA competition here, the state competition in Athens in the Classic Center. And uh, it was just nice to to be here. Um and and looking back at the, the center where I competed,
1: one I I kind of want to brag about my favorite one of my favorite components on his drone is it's the gimbal system for stabilizing a camera. Oh, so so like do you want to describe what that is and how cool it is and what you can do with it.
3: Yeah, it's uh right now it's a uh, two-axis uh, gimbal system, so you can put anything you want in it, you know, a camera, uh, stepper motor, any payload you want, and it would st- stabilize in the. Uh, pitch and roll direction um, so you can you can have it set as level so it would always stay level or you can have an angle which it will hold at no matter where um, the drone is flying. So, uh, when we made it, we were testing it using our hand because our, our drones weren't flying yet so we were just, uh, you know, pitching uh, forward and back and swinging around the gimbal but the camera was stabilized the whole time so I thought It was actually was pretty cool.
1: frustrating. Yeah. I would try and knock stuff off of it and… It would stay on because <laughs> Qua did a good job. A very, very good job. It is it's uh-huh. one of those things that when somebody comes to the lab, we're like, you gotta check this out. Thank you, thank you. So Qua, why why don't you tell us about the the inner workings of the drone? What what makes it fly, um how how it's powered, how it's run, and stuff like that.
3: Yeah, sure. Uh so as complicated as they look, um they're actually really simple. Um so you have the the brain unit, the main unit, sort of, uh, which is um, the MCU microcontroller unit, and um, its job is to take data from the, the sensor, the IMU, um, inertial measurement unit, to sense where it is in space re- regarding pitch, row, and yaw, so it could sense that, is it tilting forward, backward, or, or sideway, and um, um, incorporate with magnetometer, it could know in which direction it is pointing um, north, south, west, east, and uh, using those measurement, um, we can uh, control the drone with a speed controller and motors. And um, uh, they've run through a a PID loop, a proportional integral derivative, and it determines um, how much power it it should apply to each motor. And that way the drone balances itself pretty well. Uh, So they they do that every um, 200 milliseconds, so around 400 times a second um, that it's trying to balance itself.
1: And that's also the thing that we had to tune, right? Yes. (laughs)
3: Yes. <laughs> it's something that fast. It was, it was very hard to to notice all the small changes to know uh, which number to change.
1: It's kind of like you're teaching a drone um, common sense not to overcorrect itself.
3: Yeah, sort of kind of teach it to fly. I uh, mm-hmm. feel like teaching my kid how to walk is, is a very honorable job. <laughs>
0: From my understanding, there's uh, little modules called ESCs attached to the arms.
3: Yeah, so the, the ESCs are the speed controller. Um, they sort of take the power from the battery and, and manage how much to give to the motor. Uh, so, if you want a lot of power, the ESC will um, give the motor a lot of power. And um, the motor is... is uh, there are t- three phases, uh, usually the one I use, and um, the ESC is, is driving the motor by controlling um, each of the phases to decide uh, how much magnetic force to give it um, and how... Uh, and in what direction. And so, um, it's really cool how brushless motors work. You guys should look it up, definitely. It's a mm-hmm. cool thing to see. Uh,
0: so, is there an advantage of using a three-phase motor over uh, something else?
3: Yes. So, um, two-phase motors, they're really expensive and really heavy. So, uh, that's pretty much out of the question unless you're doing really heavy-duty groundwork. Uh, 4 phases they're much harder to control. Um, and uh, the speed is not as fast. So, I guess, for some reason, three-phase is the, uh, the ideal... Uh, so sort of set up for the uh, the rpm that the, the drones are flying at. that's cool
1: qua cool. so i I have something that I'm interested in knowing about your drones yeah um, so how how do you start the design process with drones like what 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 is your design process because I know that it, it spanned quite some time before you actually purchase parts and were' ready to go on to to next phases what what kind of kickstarts the the um the drone design process.
3: Yeah, so, the, the process is really interesting uh, and and is, is similar to um, the process that anyone will be designing anything. Um, is It start with, you know, a concept. So, uh, what do you want to do with a drone or whether you just want to make a drone for fun? And um, so, from there, you go on whether it's possible to do this. Uh, let's research uh, onto the, the technical specification, just the... Uh, um, sort of a, a hand calculation, sort of to see whether it's, it's even possible to do something like this. And uh, so for, for most drones, it's, it's been widely produced and designed. So uh, um, I usually go on to the next phase where uh, I go to the specific, where I, how I actually want to perform. So regarding the size, uh, what payload is going to be carrying, um, expected flight time and uh, performance. So uh, from there, I go into uh, the deeper part, which is actually modeling out everything, um, our aerodynamics, and uh, they have a bunch of tools that can help you out. But you just have to, you're, you're kind of on your own half of the part, <laughs> uh, and and from there, um, you have sort of like a, an outline, sort of a, a rough idea of what you want it to be, and uh, what it could be when you purchase these part, and um, even then, you're not you're not going to be purchasing it. After that, you have to review it multiple time. Um, Giving it to different people so they can have different opinion on it, and uh, after months of doing that, you have the final part list, and it's usually a couple of thousand dollars, so it's a lot of money on the line. You don't want it to fail, um, so after purchasing it, you have to go through the, uh, all the safety precaution, handling it, um, all the testing, uh, and and after you assemble it, you just kind of sort of hope it work, and it usually does if you do a great job on the other parts.
0: Well, that sounds uh quite involved. Um, do you have any advice for people who just were wanting to start off and get into this hobby? Yeah, so uh, starting off was
3: was very difficult. <laughs> um, uh, I, I started uh, the idea of wanting to make something like a quadcopter, something that flies uh, with such an intricate um, electronic system, uh, maybe freshman year, mid-year freshman year here in, uh, at UGA, and uh, no one was doing it, so I was pretty much on my own. Um, so I, I purchased a bunch of random drone part put it together hope it flies uh, uh, it didn't at first <laughs> the first one didn't unfortunately um, but uh, the second one did and it didn't do great but um, it was such an accomplishment that um, you know I, I kept going so uh, I like the rush it's, it's an amazing feeling um, but uh, in the process you're gonna you're gonna feel frustrated angry uh, feel like, you you fail yourself and everyone that's um, that's looking up to you, but you have to keep going. You know, there's there's always the end. There's there's always some point that if you keep working at it, you'll make it. So uh, so don't put yourself down. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. That's really cool, Qua. So so one one tricky subject I guess is regulations and like the public being terrified of drones. How do you stick to those regulations and um? I mean, just tell me about your your thought of all of that?
3: Oh yes, I, I think the uh, the newest FAA release was definitely a shock to me uh, because um, at the time I was working with uh, one of the um, the sort of art designer here to create a, a light show for drone. So we were planning it. We were planning our trip. Um, he was he was creating an electronics lab just solely for the purpose of this this light show we're creating. Uh, so the, the, the design process span nine months and it was the 10th or 11th month that we actually, uh, ordered the parts, um, to, to create this drone. And, um, the objective was having, you know, maybe 10, 15 drones, um, fly information, having lights or laser. Laser was a big issue because of safety, but we were thinking just, you know, bright lights and, um, actually coordinate a flight, uh, at the end of the, um, of the, uh, uh, design review process and we found out that the FAA released a new set of rules that says, you know, you cannot do that um without a commercial license. And uh, those are mm-hmm. time consuming and our deadline for the light show was up and so we ended up, you know, not, not doing it and it was that's pretty sad. But I think overall FAA has has done a great job um, regarding timeline wise to uh, to actually create some some regulation for drones because Is is getting out of hand? You know, you can you can get one of them for so cheap, and uh, they could be, you know, a danger to a lot of things. um, That's living.
0: Yeah, you guys should always. uh, If you guys are getting into the practice, or you already have one, you guys should always practice good drone safety. So don't be flying around crowds of people. Definitely don't fly around airports because airplanes can be incoming and might hit, and you don't want that. That could be very bad for everyone involved. So make sure you, can, if you fall under a certain weight limit, uh, you register yourself with the FAA. I think uh, it's still free at this point, if I'm not mistaken. Um, by the time you guys probably listen to this in the future, it's I think it's like five bucks to register. But uh, make sure you you follow the, all the regulations of the FAA and uh, getting into the hobby with drones can be lots of fun.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, making sure that you're in all of the the right legal venues is always a, a great thing to start whenever you venture to do a a big project that if you if you plan on doing projects a lot you will run into fairly often. You don't have to be a lawyer, but um, it helps to, to know what the, the law is about what you're working on and, and where you want to go. Mm. So, any last words from you guys?
2: Yeah, it's been great.
1: Yeah, it really has. It's been it's been awesome making these podcasts, being able to talk to you guys. Thanks for listening and and supporting us with, for with making a small satellite lab at UGA.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Dam brought to you by the University of Georgia Small Satellite Research Laboratory. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter at UGA Small Satin Lab. Until next time, over and out.